episode number nine with Allison Phillips. She's a great trumpet player. She's got some great bands. One with me. We also talk about Tinder. Email me at knockoutginger at gmail.com. F all the haters. tell you so i went on a date with this guy from tinder recently who was like a normal person no i'm going somewhere with this this is staying in okay okay it's fine all right i'm going with this should i start again should i start again with the story so he was like some guy who worked at skipple seemed very charming which is the airport here it's a huge airport. It's like one of the biggest airports in Europe, I think. So I went on a date with this guy from Tinder. He seemed very normal. He was like charming over chat, whatever. I went to have beers with him like right after I got back from playing with my trio in Hamburg. And I was saying to him. This is the first date? Yes, this is the first date and only date. And I was telling him about, I was like excited because I was like, okay, this guy is like not a musician great and then I started telling him about how amazing it was to play in Germany because even though we were just at some social club uh the audience was like so focused and so silent and I was telling him how like in Holland the issue is you either play in like a super formal concert hall setting or you play in a bar there's not a ton, except for like the Stork Club, and that's like, or where we played a Eindhoven last week. Like, there's not really an, enough of these in between venues where people are willing, there's definitely not enough of them to sit and listen to music quietly. Uh, they're either like rowdy in a bar and they think it's like background music, or they think it's a formal concert setting. The in between thing is really tough. Um, it's just a cultural thing. I don't really understand it to be honest. Uh, I know it can be like that in New York too, but like, for example, like somewhere like Rockwood, like, you know, people will shut up in Rockwood sometimes depending on which hall you're playing in. Yeah. Um, Cause it's a venue with a stage. Yeah. Um, and the guy says to me, he was Dutch, but you like it? Like when it's dead silent, like, aren't you worried people are going to like hear you if you make a mistake or something? Doesn't it make you nervous when they're listening that hard? (laughs) And then I left. (laughs) That's an interesting perspective, I guess. I guess so. I guess for like a non-music, I mean, this guy like had like no, he clearly wasn't like super cultured. I suppose he was like very normal human being. Maybe this is what normal human beings think, or at least normal human beings in Holland. Maybe they think they're doing a favor when they're talking over our solos. Yeah. Furthermore, maybe they think if they were performing somewhere, they would be nervous if people came. Therefore, they stay home (laughs) doing us a favor. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Also very possible. Yeah, this is a new theory. New theory. 
That was a fun story. When was this Hamburg gig and where did you play? Uh, I play, it was like three weeks ago. So it was the beginning of June. Mm-hmm. And it was this really great place called the White Cube. And it's like, yeah, it's just one of these like kind of nonprofit places. Like these couple, you know, old guys get together and get subsidies and they have like a very sort of like informal bar set up. And it was in this like suburb of Hamburg, I think mm. Ber- Bergendorf, Ber- Bergendorf, I'm for sure pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, and they, yeah, they have this venue and they like, the guy was also like a carpenter. So he like built it himself and it's kind of like of these like sort of hipper middle-aged people that live in the suburb of Hamburg. It's like the thing to do, you know, right. the cultural center. Yeah. It's interesting how these places exist. Yeah. Like and the place we played in Eindhoven. Yeah, and it's super cool how those two men who it seemed as though they weren't exactly on a business venture. Yeah. They were just doing it because they enjoyed to do it yeah exactly and they feel a commitment to the community yeah to bring different music i mean where we played in eindhoven was the pavilion de unheard music which basically means the pavilion for unheard music which is like they're in eindhoven i mean eindhoven is not a small city by dutch standards for sure there's other shit going on there uh but they feel a need to bring yeah, they feel like a commitment to the community to bring other music in. Um, also, like that uh, uh, seeds or in Montclair. Yeah, yeah, that's a cool one too. Shout out, shout out, NJ, NJ, NJ Arts. Shout out, Diane Moser. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Um, so you were there with you were in Hamburg with your trio. I was in Hamburg with my trio. Um, how often do you play around with your trio? Not as often as I want to. We play like I don't know, maybe like four times a year or five times a year at this point. Hmm. We've got a couple things coming up. It's hard out there, man. It is. Well, the bright side of well, I, I guess everyone who needs to know knows this <laughs> that you're moving home. But the bright side of you moving home is that you can now bring your other bands back. To yeah, play. I hope so. The problem with that is then we deal with a visa issue. But I would like to find ways around that. Of There's course. ways around, for sure. Yeah, there definitely are. And I also hope that once I get myself a little more acclimated, I hope to still be back and forth quite a bit, obviously between the two continents. But I also hope that once I get myself a little more acclimated back in New York, that I become slightly more desirable to book here. Right. Yeah. I don't think that'll be something that happens like immediately, but I think from what I've observed being here, you're not interesting if you're an American, but you're living here, but you are interesting if you're an American playing a lot in New York for bookers. Which is stupid, actually. Uh, well, stupid or simply business. 
Simply business, but like, yeah, it's simply business. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's a, it's a drag, but I understand, you know, like. Oh, no, totally. You know, like if you're, you're just like a one, it's almost like a one-time deal. Like who knows when you're going to be back in town again. Desirable concert. That's know? true. If you look at it that way, like, yeah, there's a lot of similarities between that and the, like, the Canada-New York or Toronto-New York relationship. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, whatever. It is what it is. You're going to record a trio record before you move back? <sighs> I think chances of that happening are slim, realistically speaking allison's got a lot of shit on her plate right now and doesn't have so much new music yet standards record man we'll see we'll see we'll see what happens we i will record another trio record sometime soon um how soon i don't know you gotta i will record another trio you have to yell into it <laughs> It literally doesn't matter how hard, how loud or softly you talk. I need one of these. Um, yeah, mouth, whatever. Uh, one of those Britney Spears mics. Yeah. Like, you don't have to be right on top of it. Just, well, don't move it farther away from me because now well, I'm you adjusting. Moved way, you moved way too close. Okay. To it. You just gotta. I'll just sit like this. You just gotta fucking goddamn it sit still. This is why I'm not a singer. Um, I don't know how to use a fucking microphone. Do you have microphone issues when you use a mic? When you. Uh, do you need more coffee? Do you have microphone issues when you use a trumpet? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I. It depends on the type of gig. If I'm not reading music, I find it very easy to play into a microphone. If I'm reading music, I find it slightly trickier because you have the whole, like, I have to sort of see through the trumpet I need to be in a position that I feel like I'm not totally overextending like my neck and shoulders. So I have to, you know, but also still be able to read the music at the same time, which can be just sort of like logistically complicated and uncomfortable after a while. I, f I find that like a thing. I've always found that a thing. And I've talked about it with other people and they're like, what are you talking about? You just like look down. But I don't know. I feel like if I'm playing like, for example, um, a complicated big band gig that I have to have my, you know, horn in the mic the whole time and also be reading these complicated big band charts and not fucking them up. I find it, I, I find it really hard to find like a comfortable position. I would like, I, it's on my to-do list to get like a good clip on mic. I don't want to get a shitty one, you know, so I feel like... Also, I remember talking to um, a trumpet player that uses a lot of pedals once about how he prefers to not use a clip-on mic when he plays with pedals because then you can adjust the distance and, like, relationship you have to the mic while you're playing, which I think is definitely a viable thing. I mean, a clip-on mic is, like, I understand if you're, like, playing a pop gig and, like, that sort of thing. But the other thing is, it depends. I don't know. Lately now, I put my pedals on a table 
or a chair or something, depending on if I'm sitting or standing. If you do want to put your pedals on the floor and play trumpet with pedals, then of course you need a clip on mic because if you're going to have to like bend down and stuff like that and play with knobs, like, you know, if you're trying to make like, you know, some sounds, yeah, then yeah, you need, you need that access, but you can sort of solve that by putting them on a table. True. Uh, the the value of playing a bass into a microphone and being able to adjust a little bit. Yeah. A microphone that isn't a clip-on microphone or a pickup is a huge. It's a huge benefit. It like amplifies the. Uh, it amplifies the fact that you're that we're still playing acoustic instruments. Totally. You know? Yeah. Also, it's like I don't know. You with trumpet especially, you get really different timbres depending on where you are, even without effect pedals. Like you. If your hor- if your bell is like super deep on the mic, you know you get this sort of like woof, woof, woof thing mm. going, which is kind of a neat, a neat one. There's a lot you can do with non-clip on mics. Yep, for sure. And I've been saying it since high school. Actually. Wow, ahead of your time. My band in high school had a bunch of horns, and I used to hate how we sounded when when they used clip on mics. Are you sure it wasn't just because it was a high school band? We were a big deal. <laughs> we were huge. Um, when you use pedals, how often do you use pedals? I use pedals when I play with Woo Girls. Nice. Woo Girls is you and... Laura Negrin. It is Negrin, not Nigrin. Laura Negrin. From Connecticut. I'm pretty sure it's Nigrin. I'm pretty sure we talked about it. Wasn't I Nigrin. saying it Nigrin? No, I was saying it Nigrin. Uh, Laura, if you're listening. Oh, wait, shit. No, it was Nigrin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So take that out. Take that out. <laughs> Woo, girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is something maybe we need to get to the bottom of. I don't know how to pronounce people's names and I don't care enough (laughs) to remember because I'm a narcissist. Uh, Laura Nigrin and I have a band called Woo Girls. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, And you guys just recorded a record or some We're recording some tracks. We have some like, we're going to probably release an EP pretty soon. Cool. And so I use pedals with that. And that band has been super fun because Laura did her master's in live electronics, but she has her bachelor's in classical bass. She's a classical bassist. Mm -hmm. She plays a lot of new music stuff. She also has this really cool trio called Trumpo, which people should check out actually. And they play, they work with composers who are mainly, I mean, not exclusively, but they try to work with composers who are either like, women or queer or like just people that are like underrepresented underrepresented <laughs> in the new music classical composition community which is cool woo girls is like i don't really know what genre we fit into just yet we're kind of like an indie rock band without drums <laughs> we're fun we play originals of hers and mine. She writes some pretty fun songs. She writes songs with a lot of lyrics about like fruit. And you're both singing? Uh, probably. She's doing most of the singing right now. 
I've always wanted to be in an indie rock band. This is my dream, my dream gig. But I was too lame because I played the fucking trumpet. Definitely an interesting selection of instruments to be defined by an indie rock band as an indie rock band, which is cool. I think it's like, I think we've got some potential. Um, I don't know if we're an indie rock band. We're like, I don't, I don't know what we are yet. We're still in our really early phases, but we definitely, we've got some cool shit going on. I'm really excited about it. Cool sounds happening. Tambors. It's very, it's the first band I've been in that has been like, let's just get together and like experiment for like four hours on a Saturday afternoon and come up with some shit. I've never really been in a, which I feel like is what a lot of people who play instruments like guitar or bass or drums have this experience like when they're in high school and when they're starting to play. And I was always kind of jealous of that because I started like, trumpet was my first instrument, my only instrument. I played guitar for like two seconds. And I took piano lessons for a little while. But like in high school, you know, I had all these friends with like these rock bands and they all all seemed really cool. And like, it seemed like they were having a really fun time like jamming. And then by the time I got to high school, I was already like a pretentious jazz nerd. I mean, I had friends that I would like get together and play a duo with and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But I never had this like pure, like raw. And I think it's really interesting too, because me and Laura come from super different backgrounds musically as well. So we're really just like figuring shit out. And I think there is, because of that compositionally, like uh, we're creating very different sounds than like what I would come up with for like our band or for like my trio or something. Mm. Um, You just described yourself as a pretentious jazz nerd in high school. Oh, I was so bad. How does that how, how, why? How does that happen? Like, uh, or what is define pretentious jazz nerd, especially in high school? This oh, is a, I was awful. But how does that work even in high school? Oh, it works. If you live in New Jersey, it is possible. <laughs> I started playing jazz. I started playing the trumpet when I was in like third grade because I really wanted to. Like I had my parents always played like a lot of jazz, like, but like mostly like Louis Armstrong stuff and like Ella Fitzgerald. And then when I was in second grade for African American history month, I did this report on Louis Armstrong. And then I was kind of just like fascinated. Like I used to really like watching all those like movie musicals when I was a kid, like high society and like all those like Frank Sinatra ones where he plays like a sailor and then like sexually harasses some woman. And then like in the end she falls in love with him kind of thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, they're great. Like, On the Town and Anchor's Way. It's worth a watch. Swing and shit. All right. I haven't seen... I've never watched a musical, and I have seen very few movies. I I think I might make you watch one tonight. Maybe this... uh... So, anyway, I had... My first trumpet teacher was a high school student who didn't go on to be a trumpet player, but she was like an advanced high school student who in a weird circle event of events. So Chris Jowdis, who's like on the faculty lives in my hometown of South orange. So he was kind of like the private trumpet 
teacher for a lot of my friends, but she was taking lessons with him. I later studied with Chris Jowdis when I was at New But so she went to college when, like, after I was in fifth grade. And so sixth grade, I needed a new trumpet teacher. I was in Manhattan in Washington Square Park with my parents and my little sister when I was in sixth grade. And I needed a new trumpet teacher. And Sherelle Cassidy was playing with, like, some guy, like, busking in Washington Square Park. Alto. And my little sister had kind of wanted to start playing alto saxophone. Um, and so my dad, because my dad will go up to anyone and start a conversation, goes up to Sherelle and like, he, you know, said like, my daughter wants to play the alto saxophone. Like, do you teach? Sherelle was like, Sherelle was studying at this time. And then he said, also, my other daughter, uh, plays the trumpet already and she needs a new teacher. Do you know anyone? And so Sherelle recommended Tatum Greenblatt, who is a great trumpet player, but at the time was also studying it. Um, and I started taking lessons with Tatum starting in sixth grade. And through Tatum, I sort of was like, Tatum was kind of like my first like real teacher. I remember I thought I was, I was always kind of like a year ahead of the kids at school. So I, with trumpet. So I always like thought I was like hot shit in elementary school. And then I remember like Tatum had me play something in my first lesson and like made me feel like garbage. And then I don't know, something about Tatum really made me want to practice. Like that was like when I started taking lessons with Tatum, I I was like, okay, I'm going to get good at this. Mm. And I kind of like all of a sudden like learned how to practice which also, like, when you're in elementary school, like, who the fuck knows how to practice? Like, you're yeah. a child. I mean, small child. How many adults know how to practice? Exactly. I don't. I, yeah, I don't know. I go in waves. But I started kind of learning the very, 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 very basics of, like, jazz theory and that kind of stuff. And then, by, like, a very weird coincidence my mom found out about the jazz standard youth orchestra through like a friend of hers because so the jazz standard youth orchestra for those that don't know is this kind of awesome also kind of weird program on sunday afternoons at the jazz standard in new york city where basically you go in in the morning you do a rehearsal for like two hours you have a small lunch break and then you play a lunch set in the afternoon. Um, And it's kids like aged, like, you know, kind of like 13 through high school. Um, It was supposed to be a big band, but like when I was in it, there were never enough players for it to be a big band. Mm. So this was my very first jazz small group experience. Um, And so basically my mom like found out about it and called them. And brought me and my sister down. My sister was like eight years old at the time. And we like did like a really weird informal audition. And like for some reason they were like, yeah, sure. And then like that afternoon we had to like play in the set. And I didn't know what a form was. Like I had no fucking idea like what was. I had only played in big bands before. And like middle school big bands, which, you know, chaos. 
Um, so I was like in the beginning, like super stage fright. Like I was like going to puke on stage, you know? Um, also like all the guys, first of all, it was like me and my sister. And then like all these guys, it was a weird social experience. Super bizarre actually, but super amazing in the sense that basically I did this and I was like, then I was like, really like, okay, like I need to figure out what the fuck this is because this makes me miserable and it makes me want to cry. And like being on stage is like the scariest shit for me of anything. And I have like diarrhea every morning before this, (laughs) which I would have like basically until I started my bachelor's. First of all, I wanted to be friends with all these guys because I thought they were super cool. Like I was like, wow. These guys are, like, really killing, and they're, like, hilarious. Like, I used to just, like, sit there, like, dying. But I was also, like, really scared of them, you know. But I did become really good friends with, like, a couple of them. Also, then Claudie Mabry joined, like, my second year, who also went to the... Who's actually, like, the great niece of Betty Mabry? Hmm. Oh, I think I've met her. She came to one of our gigs. She's lovely. Yeah. So we were like really, and we, and she was going to like boarding school in New Jersey. So we would, the second year my sister didn't do, didn't play anymore. But the first year there, I think we were like the only lady. I mean, I was just like me, but this doesn't really matter. But yeah, so basically like jazz standard was where I got my butt kicked immensely. And I became very determined to become a jazz musician. And were you studying with Tatum? I was still, yeah, I was studying with Tatum throughout this time as well. Uh, I studied with Tatum until I graduated high school. But then when I started high school, I started doing the NJ Pack Jazz for Teens program, which was in Newark, which was like a pre-college program on Saturdays. Um, But yeah, like kind of once I got into jazz, it was like all I could talk about. And it's amazing. I still have non-musician friends from high school because I was probably so, I was for sure incredibly annoying and it became this thing like, you know, like a, when I would do the NJ Pack, there was a while I was doing like the NJ Pack thing on Saturdays and the Jazz Standard thing on Sundays. And I was waking up at like 7.30 in the morning on the weekends to like warm up before I went to these things. And I was just like very determined to become very good. Uh, and yeah. And then like I, w- I had my like jazz nerd friends which I always felt sort of like I was like special because like I didn't just have my high school friends. I had my jazz nerd friends too. Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, I definitely had, I fell into that trap also. It's like, it's cool to like, it doesn't matter what the content is. It's just like having another thing that you find on your own sort of. Exactly. Is a huge thing when you're that age. Yeah. Um, And then after, so NJ Pack, Jazz Standard Youth Orchestra. I stopped doing the Jazz Standard Youth Orchestra like after my sophomore year of high school. Hmm. And I got more involved. Well, just because like, I don't remember why I stopped actually. It was a lot like to do something on Saturday and Sundays. NJ Pack was like super, super good. And there, there were a lot of women in the administration there that were, there was this wonderful woman named Joanna Gibson who, I don't know what she does now, but she was great. Um, and it was just like a more friendly, more academic 
more organized place. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was, and that was like, also the jazz standard thing was interesting because we were performing every week. We were performing every week and we, that was really the first time I really like people came, would come up to me, even though I was like so much worse than like a lot of the guys in the program at the time. Like I was so much more beginner than they were, you know, but people would come up to me because I was a girl after and be like, wow, it's so great to see a girl playing the trumpet. And it's like, that was the first time I was like really aware that this was weird. And this pressure to feel like I have to be better than the boys. Otherwise no one's going to want to play with me. That was like, that was something that I became aware of quite quickly. Because there were definitely like moments where I felt like there were boys that had to do less. So yeah, I was studying with Tatum like all through high school. Tatum and then at Jazz, uh, NJ Pack, sorry, at NJ Pack, I was getting master classes every Saturday with Valery Ponomarov, who is this lovely. <laughs> Um, Russian trumpet player who was like the trumpet player in the Jazz Messengers before Winton. He sounds like Clifford Brown. He's in, he's a lovely, lovely man. Um, what year w- so what year would that have been before Winton? When did Winton start? Do you know? Ballpark? Well, Winton was like the the last one or the I don't know. It was like eighties, probably early eighties. Um, was he so? Was he in it in the overall days? Yes. Sweet. Valery Ponomarev was in it in the overall days. Hell yeah. Which is maybe why I have such an affinity for overalls these days. So was he in it with Schnitter? Was it that era? Possible. Why can't I just like, wait, maybe if I Google Valeri. Shout out Dave Schnitter. Yeah. Well, if you Google Valeri Ponomarev Jazz Messengers, Dave Schnitter comes up as people also search for so we have to find like a jazz messengers like timeline. Yeah. Whatever. It's fine. Anyway. Valery Parnamarv, wonderful that man. Is that he was in the messengers when they wore overalls. When they wore overalls. Alongside which is, Dave Schnitter. Alongside Dave Schnitter. One might say the golden age. The golden age. Not really, but <laughs> we'll we'll leave it at that. Um but yeah, I was taking lessons with Tatum and Tatum like very much was very instrumental in helping me apply for colleges. Um, I remember Is like it something that you were basically like, I'm going to school for this or were you kind of like, I think Maybe I should go to school. For- no, I decided I was going to music school, like probably around sophomore year of college of high school, sophomore year, my second year of high school. Mm-hmm. That was like, that was it. Yeah, That was like, and it's kind of funny because like my parents really didn't do anything to like dissuade me, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that's cool. Mine didn't either. But I definitely, like I didn't take any like SAT prep courses and stuff like that because I was like, this doesn't matter. Uh, I applied for like, I applied to like all the biggies, except I went on a tour. I was like, I don't like this. I remember it was cheapest for me to go to, but I also think probably Tatum was quite instrumental in convincing me that it was the place for me as well. And his father at the time. And I'm sure I got, I had like, you know, the best, like 
academic recommendation you could get, kind of. Like, Tatum was like, oh, yeah, she practices. She's a mm. good student. She's a reliable, responsible young lady. Which, for sure, helped me out. My mom was also friends with Martin Mueller because they used to ride the PATH train together. <laughs> they just met on the train? Yeah. That's how they became And he friends. had, like, a for jazz hat on. And my mom, like, my parents are kind of, like, a little, um, they're little social butterflies. Yeah, I mean, really, as far as, like, my friend's parents go, some of the most involved, lovely people. Yeah, they're Great. pretty good. Pretty solid, solid humans, I would say. Very supportive. Yeah. Um, they, yeah. So I went to, which I think was probably the best decision for me because I think I kind of wanted to go to, but it was too expensive. And I think it was a good choice in the end. I still want to go to. Yeah. I remember I had a really great time with John McNeil when I went for my audition. And then, but then I took some lessons with John McNeil anyway. At the, I could. In at the same time as Lori Frank, which was actually a really special combination. Talk about her, please. Lori Frank was. I feel really lucky, which is something I didn't realize until I moved to Holland. I feel incredibly lucky. Should I stop talking while these go up? Yeah, this fucking blind. I would just like to know why and how. Are there like sensors on the building? I have no idea. Like, whatever. Nobody knows. Sorry. Uh... Lori Frank. Yeah, what were your experiences with Lori Frank? She was... So yeah, I feel really fortunate that I've had like all these teachers especially my early, more formative years that I felt really looked after by. Um, which I don't think, I think is a very American thing, as I've realized. I disagree, but I believe you. I don't know. I haven't had that. Maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe it's also a Canadian thing, but it, it's definitely not a Dutch thing. At least in my experience. Right. Maybe if I was Dutch, I would have a different thing. Yeah. Different thing to say about it. But I felt like, yeah, I mean, Lori was like teaching like five days a week, like eight hours a day, and still made you feel special and loved when you came to lessons. That's super important. Yeah. And, I think it's incredibly important for trumpet players, especially when you get to a higher level of trumpet playing, because it's such like a mental mind fuck of an instrument. It's super important that they kind of have this capability of like doubling as your shrink, <laughs> which in Lori Frink was shrink to the, was a shrink to the greatest trumpet players of the 20th century and 21st century, you know, everyone went to her mm -hmm. and she was incredibly businesslike, incredibly professional, but still like, and it would, it was really like, you know, you would go and if you were a couple of minutes early, you would just like sit in her hallway and just like wait for, you know, someone to come out and then you would go in, you know, very, very doctor's office vibe. Yeah. She'd, couple great cats I liked. Nice. Um, 
in my own teaching now, I use her stuff. Um, not exclusively, but her method of giving you this kind of this routine every week and expanding upon it and stretching it. And, you know, it was a routine that would maybe take you like an hour, an hour and a half a day. Um, but if you only did that routine every day, you were going to improve. So even if you didn't have time to like transcribe a solo or something that day or whatever it was, you're working on that at the time. If you exclusively did that and I use it in my own practicing too. Like, you know, if I'm trying to build my range or if I'm trying to build my flexibility, like I try to think how would Lori go about this? I, I think she had an incredibly clear, cohesive, uh, she was an amazing like pedagogical human, you know, uh, wonderful woman. Wonderful woman. Miss her a lot. Think about her all the time. It's kind of amazing, actually, how much I think about her. When did she pass away? Like 2014 or something? Something like that, yeah. I remember it was at, while I was at school. Yeah, I think it was like my last year. Because that was the thing. I studied with her for two years, and then I moved on and started studying with Chris Jowdis and Ingrid Jensen. Which was like a very strange combination to have. Yeah, so I was like combining. I don't remember if I did like, I think I was doing six and three. So I was doing like six lessons with Jowdis and three lessons with Ingrid. Like basically my entire last years. And I think, yeah. Jowdis is like a, a trumpet athlete, you know? He's like a, a really killing lead trumpet player. Uh, and Ingrid Jensen is Ingrid Jensen. I know you talk a lot about Ingrid. Yeah. Who I think, uh, I think I've heard you say more than once that she's maybe your favorite human. She's, yeah. She's great. She's incredibly inspiring to study with. I think it was really good to study with her after I studied with Lori. I mean, she also studied with Lori. Um, she was like way less structured as a teacher than Lori, of course, but like, just in terms of like an inspiration and like a, a lady to look up to and a lady that I felt like, you know, you would go out there and she would make you dinner and have a lesson, hang out with her kid. She's cool. Um, and also as like an artist, she's someone I really relate to and like, you know, aspire to be like, I think. I think we all should aspire to be like Ingrid Jensen. Yeah. She's one of the few, well, I, get, I don't want to say few. She's someone who I see playing with students and young people a lot, which is something that I admire so much about, like, the, uh, like the, the middle-aged, successful musician that doesn't have to do that. Yeah. That still decides to do that. Uh, I have tremendous respect for those people. And it's interesting with her because she doesn't, it's quite rare that you see her talking about like the woman in jazz thing, which I think is also, um, cool. She goes and she sits on panels and it's not that I don't think she's, uh, an ally. She's totally an ally, but like she just like cuts people up and that's like her thing which is awesome 
I think it's super badass. Yeah. Uh, Obviously people's lives are their own lives and they can make their own decisions. And I have no idea what it's like to be a woman playing jazz. No. But the fact that she doesn't talk about it, someone like her could probably throw her weight around quite a bit. You know what I mean? I think she does talk about it every so often when she's off the books. But I don't really think we ever like talked about it in my lessons. Also with Lori. And I think that is actually really powerful because it's not like I studied with them because they were women. I just studied with them because they're fucking badasses. And I think for me, actually, it it was helpful to have mentors around that. Because, for example, someone like does talk about it in a really obnoxious way. So much. Exactly. And I hate her. <laughs> you better take her name out. She uh, wears crazy clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I think that's a, like going back to the Ingrid thing, like it's really powerful that she doesn't talk about it so much. You know, she's just like so in the music and just trying to make great music, which is a great way to think about it. Yeah. Um, I do think it's something that does need to be addressed, especially for like younger generation, like younger kids, because I do think the bulk of the stuff about being a woman in the jazz community that maybe fucked me up was like the stuff I went through in high school and like the very beginning of my jazz school career. I think once I turned like 20, 21, it really stopped being an issue or it hasn't, I wouldn't say it stopped being an issue. I still quit a big band because of it. And I still was forced to dance with one of my professors in front of a big band. The same professor who grabbed my shirt and called me a f- Exactly. So, I mean, who knows what the deal is with him. Yeah, I mean, like, like what we were talking about a little last night, like the whole social dynamic of jazz. I mean, jazz is like a freaking, it's, it's so social. Like the... It's it's such a it's which I think is actually an interesting thing here in the Netherlands versus the U.S. Not that it's not a social thing here, but the scene is so much smaller, and the jazz scene in the Netherlands used to be, and in Europe in general, like you know they had all these radio big bands, so you were still kind of like going to work every day because they still had even though they were jazz orchestras they still had almost this you know going to work with your colleagues kind of attitude i'm sure shit went down with them and i don't know i i hear about you know people are like bitter in all these sections you know and blah 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 but like in terms of like the social aspect of it is a little more controlled here cuz i i think there's more of this like colleague relationship whereas in the States and also probably in Canada, I would assume you, the only jobs that are like that are like if you're in a Broadway pit or if you're in the jazz at Lincoln center orchestra, 
which still probably has a very social thing. And so like going back to what I was saying, like when I was like young and doing the just standard stuff and there was with all these guys that were like older than me and like cooler, like what I thought were like cooler. I really wanted them to like be my friend. I wanted to be friends with them. And I had to figure out like how to be friends with boys. Not that I didn't have male friends like growing up, but like I really had to like figure out like, okay, like these guys, I mean, they're like pubescent teenagers. Like they don't really want to be friends with like a little 12 year old girl from the suburbs, you know? How, so how did you, what did you figure out? How did you? Well, like what we were saying, like, you know, you're like, you know, why don't you just call a band of like only women just like not as an all girl band, but just like there needs to be more bands that are only women just because they're friends and they're hanging out. And I do think that's totally true. But I think my social like aesthetic was molded so much by being a minority for such a long time that it's super hard for female music. And I'm sure I'm not, I'm sure this is, um, this is an issue for most female jazz musicians. We're so used to being this minority in this like boys club that we kind of like forget that we also need female friendships. And they're also, we're always the minority. There's always usually only like one or two of us. So it's like the idea of like us getting together in a group, which I do think like Roxy Koss is doing this, that uh, W-I-J-O, Women in Jazz Organization. Like that actually like organizes like meetups for women in jazz. Um, I haven't gone to any yet because I've been here, but like I plan to go when I'm, I'm like part of the organization. Um I think that's super powerful because we don't know how to make friends with each other. We've spent so many, so much of our lives, like being like trying to just like be one of the bros because we wanted, because we desperately like craved the social attention and social aspect of the jazz community that it's like really hard for us. And, and like I was saying last night, like I've throughout my entire jazz career I mean of course I've had other female friends like from other things but like I kind of only have like for every like era of my musical career I would probably say I only had like maximum like two really good jazz lady friends at one time which is like an interesting thing when you think about it like I could only like mentally sustain like one or two at a time of like ladies that like were friends and colleagues. But I will say these lady friends have been incredibly important in my musical development. Every single one of them. Um, me too. Your jazz lady friends. Yep. Definitely. (laughs) Um, like most of my, like I had a pretty sweet New York job. Uh, I had the opportunity to play with one of my teachers, um, the, my friends that hire me to play mostly all women. Do you think we finished talking about the all woman band? I think so. As a, as not part of that community, I would assume that based on conversations that are happening, um, there would be way more all-women bands because I know how many killers there are. I think it's going to be really interesting to see 
what happens in the next like 25 years. That's a long time. These things take time. Making a band, though? For me? No, to anyone. Oh, in general, just like making it more common? I think it's going to take at least 25 years before. I mean, not even more common, just any. Oh, just like any at all. Yeah, I think there will be some. Based on the climate. I would have assumed that there are so many more like because the amount of great players that I know because women still don't want to be branded as women. They still want to be branded as burners that can play like the boys, even though these conversations are happening. And even though there's a lot of really good shit going on deep down, people aren't really like, proud you know what i mean like they still want to be one of the boys i don't know i i'm i don't really know where i fall into this shit there's a band in toronto speaking of this i forgot there's a a band of women that plays mostly mary lou williams and jerry allen tunes that's awesome yeah and they sound fucking great Uh, things like that are happening more and more i wish i knew what they were called terry parker is the leader Great Toronto piano player. Cool. Free Spirits? Maybe. Maybe. Whatever. Google them. Who's your uh, trumpet Mount Rushmore? (laughs) Mount Rushmore. (laughs) That's a funny mount to... uh, (laughs) Um... I'm going to put Wynton Marsalis on there. Woo! That Live at the House of Tribes record. Fuck yeah. God damn, Wynton as the first choice. Hell yeah. (laughs) I don't know anyone. I would have never guessed that answer from any person. Especially me. Fuck yeah. I think Ingrid. I think I'm going to put Ingrid. Ingrid on there too. I'm going to put them next to each other. Uh, what's your favorite Winton aside from House of Tribes? I like to hear him play standards, you know? Mm. Like all those like early standards recordings. Black Codes totally changed Black my life. Black Codes is great too, yeah. I, uh, I listened to that a lot in high school. That one, like, as soon as I learned, as soon as, that was like one of the first moments that I heard, I heard it early enough. Uh, that it was one of the first not Canadian jazz records I heard. Hmm. And then it just kind of fucking opened up the whole landscape of like, there's energy in this music and you don't have to be, you don't just have to be nice, you know? Yeah. It was like my first opening to like, fuck, let's, let's fucking speed up if we want to speed up. Man, I fucking love angry jazz. Yeah. I think angry jazz, jazz, battle jazz is my favorite kind of jazz. Yeah, Black Codes is great. I I like um like Booker Little was one of the first guys. I discovered Booker Little like by accident on iTunes when I was probably like 15. He still is one of my favorites, you know. 
um, I think the thing is like, he was so different from anything I was listening to when I was in high school. You know, I was only listening to like Clifford Brown and like Freddie Hubbard and actually, okay. Lee Morgan, sorry, Lee Morgan, Booker Little, Ingrid Jensen, Wynton Marsalis. Holy fuck. It's a solid list. Lee Morgan is, was the fucking best man. I think if he had lived longer, I don't know what the fuck he would have done, but he's like, also Booker Little died super young. I think he was like even younger than Lee Morgan. He was like 23 or something. I know that's the thing. Like I heard that Booker Little Max wrote shit like when I was like before I knew what that was, you know what I mean? And that's like, because it's funny. I think part of the reason I always liked jazz when I was younger was like, cause it was different than like what my friends were doing. And it was different than like what I've always kind of liked being like weird. Yeah. For the sake of being weird. Not for the sake of being weird. That sounds fucked up. But I've never really, I've always liked, so then it's like when I got into jazz, then I was like, oh, I really like this book or little Max Roach stuff. And it was like my little weird thing when I was 15. But Lee Morgan, Lee Morgan is like my main inspiration. Probably. In life. Maybe not in life. Uh, yeah. But Have you seen that movie? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen them. We just wrapped up a short little run of gigs in Holland with our band. Um, Dacon Phillips Collective featuring Sun Mi Hong, Dario Tropani, and Robin Van Ryan. And I had a great time. Party time. It's super fun and inspiring to just show up at a place and basically play with a bunch of people you don't know and feel very strongly about the music in a positive way. Totally. Not only people that I don't know very well, but also people who are each from a different country. Jazz is an international language. Like... Holy fuck. Jazz diplomacy. <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie for president. I think we're going to make another record soon. I think so. Money kind of sucks, but... Accepting donations now. Yeah, that's another thing. Um, I'm not sure... I feel like I'm going the... I don't exactly want to have sponsors and I just want to emphasize that and I'm not going to do the Patreon thing. No, I'm not going to beg for money, but I think I want to emphasize that if people listen to this and they want to help, they just need to, <laughs> just <buy> throw. It. <laughs> they just need to like check out our music, tell people about yeah, music. Just buy it on Bandcamp, and you can pay whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, Share the love, tell your friends. Buy it on Bandcamp. Don't buy it on the other stuff because we get like nothing. Fleaboy Records. Bandcamp. Oh yeah. What's the state of Fleaboy? Who knows? Uh I think we should know. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone. What's the next Fleaboy release? We've got Iman Sparharan coming out with a record Fleaboy boy zero zero eight zero zero eight and i think there's an old mountain record coming out like sometime <sighs> who knows 
a lovely label of lovely people. Not the most organized, but that's fine. That's fine. I think we do a pretty good job with what we have. Yeah. No funding, no resources. But we exist. Yeah. And that's, We've got nice graphics. That's all that matters. And I think maybe you might be seeing a uh, a tape re-release. Oh, yeah. Because I want to waste more money on product. Hey, you know, you'll sell it all eventually. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Money's tough. I'm not so good at money. Well, money is money is a difficult subject. Yeah. I, I also sure. am not a super huge fan of like crowdfunding things. It's yeah. not really for me. I ran into a band on, on one of these crowd crowdfunding things a couple days ago who basically just who strictly ran it as a pre order. I think people are doing that more often now. We're basically like, give us money for the record. You will get a record once it's made. That is that. None of this like, please give us money and we'll send you a fucking autographed. People send cookies. Cookies and an autographed piece of sheet meat. Like, get fucked. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, anyone can like. I don't know. I shouldn't be generalizing this. I don't know other people's situations, but like anyone can like put aside a few thousand bucks. Just work your ass off for a little while. Not anyone is a bit of a stretch. Not anyone. But yeah, we made our record for quite cheap. For quite cheap. I made both my records for quite cheap. I also. Depends how fancy you want to be. Yeah. But fancy, in our world, fancy is who gives a fuck because no one's going to hear it anyway. And so many of these records that are blowing up and sound so great and are so cool to listen to uh, do not have the polished aesthetic that everyone's paying for. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are you most excited about for when you move back to America? Ooh, loaded questions. Um, I'm excited for a lot of things. I'm excited to be in a new, in a, well, it's not new for me because I already lived there, but I'm excited to be in a new music community again. Cause I think one of the things about moving here that gave me so much momentum when I first got here was like the fact that I felt this immediate need to like get on my grind because I didn't know anybody really like go to sessions and really like try to figure out what the scene was about because I had no idea. Whereas I feel like I've been away from the New York scene for long enough now that I think I'll have to do somewhat of a similar thing again, which I find can be very inspiring musically. (sighs) I'm excited to be in a place that has like a big enough scene that I feel like I have like, some options and that I can kind of float around a bit. That's one of the big things I feel. I feel like in, in Amsterdam, you get kind of boxed in, uh, categorically, no matter what, you know? Uh, and I'm excited to be in a city where like everyone does the, 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 you know, wedding gigs, even if they're playing like improvised music on Thursday night or something. You know what I mean? Yep. 
I miss that. Yeah. Um, the thing that I miss the most, and I realize how ridiculous this sounds because it's like not exactly my scene, but the small session. And like, I've only played it at once, maybe twice, mm-hmm. but going to that session and just hearing the people that show up out of nowhere. Yeah. And rip or fall on their just face. Just fucking fall on their face is is great. That's one of the things here too though that like a lot of guys that are from here they they come and they tell me like, "Man, but like the level at like a lot of the New York sessions aren't like so happening." Which is fucking wrong. It's like, super wrong, but it's also like Man, this is an education. Like this, these are for education. These are, you know, like you don't cook meat when it's cooked. Exactly. I'm excited to be back in New York. I'm excited to be able to get tacos whenever the fuck I want that taste good. I'm excited to be able to. I'm not excited for the gluten problem that will start again in my belly. I'm not excited to find a new apartment. Allison needs a place to live. Allison needs a place to live from November. Looking for room. Very clean. Am I very clean? Do you think that's an exaggeration? 